Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. All right, you're on Green Left. Good morning from Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, I was just, the microphone was just a bit too low. So uh, <laughs> now we have in our program today, we have a special guest, Kieran Tully. Um, hello. Hello. Yes, he's a guest come. Um, host. Yes. Guest, guest slash host. Yeah. I'm Lali, Lalita here. And, and, or you also have Jacob here, who's the one speaking on the work then. So, alright, okay, um, in terms of like, I guess, what has been, ha- uh, maybe we'll go to ask both you questions. So, what is the mm-hmm. sort of latest in the news, right? Um, like what in politics, you know, that's happening? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. <laughs> It's like um, having the presidential um, debate. It's absolutely disgraceful. Yeah. But I'm sure uh, you know the mainstream is covering it enough for for listeners to um, follow that. But then you know people saying, well, you've got bad and worse. Which one do you choose? That's the um, that's the um, general line that's being followed. Yeah, so I, I, well, on the topic of Donald Trump, um, my street has been dominated by Trump recently, actually. On, off, on, off, um, Sunshine Road, there's all this, um, there's this thing, new graffiti, a lot of new graffiti art with pictures of Donald Trump. So, really? Oh, yeah. for what? I don't know. It's just, I think it's supposed to be intended to be funny. There's this, um, okay. gra- um graffiti that says Trump was here. Uh, and then there's a one where, that, where, um, Donald Trump is sort of, has all this makeup on and sort of dress, dresses up. Looks like looks like a female. I know they're, they're sort of they're making a fool of him, but he's actually quite dangerous. He's doing well in in some of the states, so they uh, better watch yeah, themselves. But as you say, that uh, Hillary's dangerous as well. You know, they're both as dangerous, if not worse. Involved in coups in Honduras, this sort of mm. thing. You know. Kill a lot of people. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, I guess. Um, well, t- in terms of like um, one thing that's um, been sort of you know many sort of been hearing in the news is um, the big CUB dispute. Um, maybe for listeners, I'm sure you've probably heard about it, but I'll guess a recap um, what it's about. Um, basically, Carlton United Breweries um, sacked, um, it was, I think, 50, 55 workers. 55 workers. Yeah. Um, these were, like, you know, very well-trained workers, and they've sacked them and given um, given their, um, given, offered them, they've re-offered their jobs at 65% less pay. That's right. Yeah. Um, of course, and what's happened since there's, there's been uh, ongoing 24, um, not a 24 seven from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. There's been like a, pro, uh, a protest from the 55 workers um, at the site, um, and we've, they've had obviously they've had plenty of support. They've been having support from the unions who have um, been fundraising for a strike fund, which is keeping them afloat because you know. Um, in such you know long period of indus- of action, um, you know some of these workers would consider fo- try to find a new work, but you know they're keeping on going, keeping. And just recently, yesterday, um, there was a big mass 
mobilization, a, ra- a big rally. This is probably the more significant rallies um, that going because it attracted over 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, what, um, how that happened was the, the CFMEU had, um, called stop, um, had stopped work on their unionized sites and joined the march. Um, the, um, the ETU had all, had also decided in a mass meeting and, um, that, um, with 3,000 of their workers, um, that they would also, um, be joining and supporting the protests. Um, so that was particularly significant. Um, and also in, um, in, this is an article in the latest Green Left Weekly. One of the other positive developments is, um, one of their contractors, um, of the Carding Union um, Brewery. This is kind of like a big development. Um, programmed, um, the contractor, which is at the center of the dispute, um, they're called Programmed Skilled, has broken its contract with the brewery. Um, Program Skilled claimed it was concerned about the health of safety of its workers at the site as they passed the protest camp set by the, up by the sacked workers each day. The real reason, however, is likely to be that Programmed failed to maintain production without the skilled maintenance crew that had worked at CUB. I guess in terms of long term of what's happening now is um, the grand finals coming up um, because um, they sacked these workers who are like really skilled. Um, they did a job the particular way. They've actually hired scab workers um, to replace them, and they're not as good um, because they haven't been trained the same way. The machinery is quite complex. And the, yeah, the machinery is quite complex. It. So um, the, the production's actually going down, and what's um, significant is Carding United Brewery is actually losing money. And there's also these concerns that um, they won't have enough beer in time for the grand final. Um, though ideally, I'm hoping. Every single grand final barbecue on October the first is CUB free, <laughs> um, and that's one of the ca- that's one of the sort of campaigns um, around this. That's one of the sort of things um, around this is that um, it's calling on all everyone to you know have a CUB free grand final. <laughs> no, the the and you know the more important thing about this whole whole strike is that the EBA came um, to fruition and it. What matured, and they ended the the the, the EBA, and they put forward the terms that you described, Jacob. But at the moment, there are about four, forty to fifty other employers who haven't renewed EBAs because they're waiting to see the outcome of the CUB. If the CUB wins and they get what they want, there'll be forty or fifty other bunch of workers having new EBs, EBAs with similar cutbacks in their wages. That is the overall dangerous part of this whole dispute. Those 55 workers will survive. They've got enormous support. Um, <clears throat> in, the no- in, in the north, um, another union had uh, levied all the workers, 20 bucks, and there were 7,000 workers. So money is not an issue. Support is not an issue, although it's important, and we need to keep it up. But the more important thing is the overall attack on the workers and their wages across the board. And this becomes a precedence. Workers are dead. You know, you're not going to be able to afford to pay your rent. That's how bad it is. In Kalgoorlie, for example, not Kalgoorlie, in Kuli, in Western Australia, similar things happened. And the women who were who not, who were interviewed said that they can't pay their bills and they won't be able to pay their mortgage. If the same uh, cutbacks, there it is. They are dropping them by 43% their wages. So it's impossible to live on. So this is this is how important this rally is and this dis- dispute is because the workers are being completely punished by the employers. The government sitting back and watching and not doing anything about it. That is the political front we are facing as mm-hmm. workers. Um, so everybody who's listening has to, 
you know, to think about it because it is really important for all of us to be involved in this dispute. It's yeah. too vital. Yeah, because um, as you sort of said, Lali, it kind of shows that, uh, you know, if you let one employer get away right. with this, it's going to affect all of us as workers. Um, and don't forget the TPP is coming as well. If, you know, Donald Trump and Hillary have sought out their, their, their whatever, their booty in, um, in the U.S., if they, you, they still... Hillary supports the TPP, Obama did. Well, but if that goes through, it, then the Asia Pacific is going to, to endorse it. That means workers will suffer further cuts hmm. because they want workers to be, be being paid absolute minimum wages. So you've got a CUB front and then you've got a TPP front. So it's a stepped um, uh, you know, process. So we really have to think about this very seriously. Mm-hmm. And I guess, and um, I just want to give uh, an update on um, many, um, some listeners would have heard we did an interview with um, with one of the persons involved in this particular co- case involving Jasmine Pilbro. Oh, yes. Um, she, um, for listeners who have not heard the story, she was um, facing court um, for because she particularly took an action um, on a flight. Uh, there was going to be a flight where a asylum seeker was going to be was put onto that flight and was going to be deported to offshore detention. I think I'm not sure. And it was going to Darwin and, and then going, be deported. Yeah, mm-hmm. going to da- it was get, um, they were going to be flying to Darwin and um, this particular asylum seeker was going to be deported. So Jasmine went and stood up, um, didn't leave, um, stood up on the flight um, to prevent him from being deported, and as a result, um, she has um, been she went to court. Um, and um, last Friday, there was a big sort of action, um, you know, in support. she faced um, a hearing. Um, the outcome of the hearing was, um, though I don't know particularly all the legal kind of jargon in that, but I'll just go tell you the outcome was that she would be fined at least $3,000. Um, I think it was from some, I think it was based on some obst- um, obstruction of like, you know, you obstructing and, you know, Qantas lost money apparently and that's that's kind of the legal, I don't really know, like, Leah, but um, what was great um, and significant in response to that, um, there was a big crowdfunding um, organising campaign um, to um, to support, um, to pay for Jasmine's court fine um, and it ended up raising double of within 24 hours, mm. which was fantastic. And mm-hmm. um, the rest of it was um, that um, wasn't um, that um, that wasn't for the fine was um, um, was sent to um, sh- uh, charities um, for to support refugees. And it's um it's good it's good in a way because you know the whole case of Jasmine Prewo is actually kind of like a way of deterring people from taking such actions, and um, the amount the solidarity that has been shown in, in support is giving you know power to the you know, fact that you know we can they can it can be done again, That's right. um, and yeah. you know um, any protester that can do what Jasmine did, which was very brave, um, should have nothing to fear because you know. We have there's there's a movement behind it to support you when when things like this like you know if you're getting sentenced with a fine or something. Yeah, the legalities were fairly straightforward. They, she tried to establish that this was some um, something that was you know uh, any person would do to stop mm. the sort of deportations, and the judge said that well yours wasn't spontaneous, yours was planned and targeted. But if there were two other people who stood up on the plane, their actions were deemed as spontaneous because they were already on the flight going somewhere. And Jasmine wasn't going anywhere. So they were the sort of intricacies I, I of Jasmine it. Jasmine was going somewhere. No, she bought a ticket to get on the plane to stop okay. this. The delib- you know, that was, that was the targeting okay. part of it. So that was the, the issue they honed in on. But anyway, 
um, she's the, the, in the end at the moment, her, the fine, and she's got to show remorse, apparently. And the sentencing will actually happen on the 11th of November as to what you know, finally transpires. But hats off to Jasmine. Yep. Brave girl and Don't lots worry. of courage. And we need more people doing that sort of stuff. Mm. Okay. Um, one other item we can quickly go through. It's a... Um, Short one. It's about the MUA win in the High Court, but that main media hasn't covered. Now, the Maritime Union of Australia um, and the uh, Australian Maritime Officers Union have hailed the court victory that will protect local jobs um, on offshore oil and gas. So that what, what happened was the High Court unanimously ruled the 31st of August against the federal government's decision to exempt workers on vessels in the offshore oil and gas industry from from visa requirements. So what happened? The unions argued that the exemption provided an incentive for companies to hire foreigners on lower wages and undercut safety standards and conditions. The court found that the immigration minister had exceeded his authority by exercising unrestrained powers. The decision means that the foreign workers will need visas and Australian pay levels and conditions and that is a big victory for the maritime workers. And, and this is something that no one has picked up. And it's an enormous victory because the way employers are, uh, do, uh, you know, um, using this, this loophole, because some of those islands excise, therefore they're, they're saying that, that that is for immigration purposes. So because those islands are excise, what they're saying is, well, this area is not actually part of Australia for immigration purposes. And they're trying to stretch it to the maritime union purposes as well. So... Cash lost. Michaela, cash lost in court. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But anyway, so I think that's something we need to be proud of, that they took them court and, and the workers won. And no more cheap labor, which is another way of undermining um, local workers' wages and conditions. Nothing against foreign workers, but they need to be paid properly. Mm. That's the um, fundamentals of it. Okay, we've got somebody on the phone for the interview. Yep. Okay, so, so we have um, Cissé on the phone, and this interview is about Ethiopia, and I think it's one of those um, countries that every so often pops into the media and then it disappears. It's always a bit tricky to get a handle on the issues in Ethiopia because it's extremely complex. They have about um, 80 different ethnic groups, and many of them with their own languages and customs. So, Sisa, you there? Yes, uh, I'm here. Good morning, Sisa. Good morning. <laughs> I was a bit worried morning, there. <laughs> now, do you have um, the other person with you or just by yourself? Uh, yes. Good morning. My name is Figuist. I'm here as well. Figuist, good morning. Okay, so um, I'm just thinking maybe we should give a little bit of a background before we go into the actual issues. Now, Ethiopia is made up of 80 different groups and it's got a very um, complicated history. So I just wondered if you give us a little bit of a background on the history, please, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, as you said, uh, there are more than 80 uh, nation nationalities in Ethiopia. They have their own culture, language. And uh, as you said, Ethiopia have a long history. Uh, and that history, of course, makes things uh, complicated. However, recently, um, uh, to be specific, 25 years ago, the current ruling party um, took took the country uh, with power from um, Derg. Uh, the, the, that was the, the ruling party before uh, 
the current government. And since then, uh, Ethiopia has been uh, namingly becoming a democratic nation, federal democracy in Ethiopia. And what, what, what's the name of the party that took power five years ago? So the party that um, took, um, took over 25 years ago was the TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Fund. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a different party currently um, under um, rule of Ethiopia at the moment. However, it is a combination of TPLF and other parties. Um, and w- what we're here to talk about and what, what we're here to discuss is how Ethiopia, even though it has an international face of a demo- democratic society and a, democ- a democratic nation, um, this uh, government is, it came into power uh, with 100% uh, uh, acceptance and approval by the, um, by the voting, and it, it has 100% seats in parliament. Um, so we find that uh, quite unbelievable. That amazing. That is yes, amazing. 100% yeah. is a massive... How did they do that? Uh, it's, I wish we knew how to so Australia <laughs> could employ the same thing. But it, we find it very questionable that um, a democratic society can have one party rule 100% seats in parliament. Yeah. And to add on that, uh, how it happened is, uh, I mean, for a normal person, it's unbelievable that one party will win 100% of uh, the parliament seat. And uh, when it's uh, in Ethiopia, where, as you mentioned before, there are a lot of ethnic groups and um, a lot of oppositions, it's impossible. However, the government uses um, the terrorism law that's implied to imprison any critics, even uh, reporters and opposition parties, and uh, they will imprison them simply. And therefore, you would not find any uh, opposition violations or protest because, again, the, the protesters or the, the supporters of opposition party uh, will, will be jailed. And the, the, the prison even right now is flooded with um, opposition party leaders, uh, reporters who have been um, deemed as terrorists because they criticize the government. Mm. So, that, so that's how it happened. Ethiopia has had many um, very interesting uh, political parties like the ONLF, which is the Ugandan National Liberation Front, and before that you had the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, and then you had Hale Selassie before that. So it's it's quite when Hale Selassie was around, everybody knew Ethiopia, and then the only thing that that pricked people's ears is when they talk about Addis Ababa. So the question I put to you is. What, what is it that you see, you know, given the complexities and the composition of Ethiopia, like you've got Somalia at one front, Eritrea in the north, Sudan to the east, Kenya to the south. Um, what, what, is, what is it that will unite, um, or which organization do you think will unite all these forces? Uh, before she says something, uh, I'd like to interject here. I don't think um, at, at the moment right now, we can even answer what will unite Ethiopia because there are so many questions um, that oppose the government, whether that be uh, uh, institutional questions or uh, covert mechanisms or overt mechanisms in which they have either oppressed the people or um, create division within people and ethnicities. Uh, But you can't talk about uniting Ethiopia without addressing these questions and creating accountability for these questions. The, The reason why... Um, my personal belief is why there are so many um, opposing views and um, communities that arise um, in regards to politics or 
um, human rights is because that this government has systematically divided people um, so that they, uh, they are oppressed in numerous ways, whether that be ethnically, whether that be socially, whether that be econo- um, through their economy. Um, so you can't talk about uniting Ethiopia without acknowledging and creating accountabilities for each and all these um, grievances that the people have. Mm. So is there any one group or several groups that actually have that approach in your knowledge? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we are not uh, politicians. Uh, I mean, it's very hard for us to, to give an expert opinion on that. However, it is my opinion, and I'm sure many others, that ethnic-based um, politics in Ethiopia will all only end up with division because... For example, uh, we said 25 years ago, TPLF took power, and TPLF itself is stand for uh, Tigray People Liberation Front. And therefore, the, the first uh, main concern will be the people of Tigray. Yes. And other, others uh, uh, that are based on ethnic groups, uh, if, if they took power, their main concern will be simply uh, the people who they fought for. And therefore, that kind of... Um, political uh, that is based on ethnic group will not unite Ethiopia. But fair election, for example, they, they were at, uh, in, nine, in 2005, to give an example, there was um, a new political party that was formed one year within the election time. And they won one third of the parliament seat. That was, that was, um, uh, that was amazing for Ethiopian people because that was the first I would say democratic election, close to democratic uh, fair election. However, just on the eve of the election, most of the um, opposition leaders, they were in jail, and more than 30,000 supporters were also uh, found themselves in prison. And therefore, I would think what would unite Ethiopia in the future is a fair election. If all the opposition parties get their chances, you know, uh, to to campaign, and also if their supporters were not harassed, I think there will be a future for Ethiopia. But as we said right now, the human rights violation that's going on in our country, the democratic rights violation, where people are jailed for protesting and also uh, for supporting opposition parties, and the discrimination between, uh, as as I said, when TPLF took power, the main concern will be the Tigray people. Even though they are minority 6% of the population, yes. most of the power in, in the government hmm. is controlled by them. For example, 98% of the generals of the National Army is from that ethnic group. And also the corruption, that is um, uh, just hard to say, but also what's killing the people right now. So... That, that, that is what we want to activists uh, uh, actively, uh, like we want uh, the, the world media to be aware of the human rights violation that's going on right now. More mm. than 100 people are killed. Peaceful protesters are killed. And therefore, we want to focus on that. Mm. Do you have any human rights organizations that operate within Ethiopia to look at these sort of issues as well? Um, actively, actively, that are currently working in Ethiopia. 
I'm not 100% sure. Mm. Um, the government uh, in itself is very uh, restrictive in what information can enter and exit Ethiopia. We do know that um, externally what is currently happening is because of international pressure, um, the diaspora um, organisations such as Human Rights Watch have been watching what's going on in Ethiopia and um, Oromo and the, um, the protesters that are dying there. And they are acknowledging that um, they are being uh, excessive force has been placed upon them in regards to dealing with um, dissent. And that they are um, trying to get them to be accountable. Um, Amnesty International is um, has made statements in regards to um, the most recent protests and the most recent um, riots that have been going on. Um, and what people like ourselves um, all over the all over the world right now, um, the diaspora of Ethiopia, um, of Ethiopia, are attempting to to create international awareness and international pressure and break that you know international facade of democracy. Um, and that is what the people of Ethiopia are trying to do. So we're trying to mimic those actions here um, to create and generate more awareness and more aid for that region. Mm. So if you want to give um, listeners um, some information of how they can support you um, and also if they, uh, they desire to give you um, aid, as, as you mentioned. So is there any co- uh, contact details you want to give listeners? Um, yes, we do. Um, we're, our personal group in itself, um, we formulated ourselves quite recently. We're called the Ethiopian Melbourne Youth Support Group. Mm-hmm. And we were created as a means for Ethiopian youth residing in Melbourne to advocate and raise awareness about the oppressive, brutal and violent actions of the Ethiopian government to the Ethiopian people. Um, we acknowledge the intricate and complicated web of politics and ethnicities that exist in Ethiopia. And, and our support group recognises our privileges being the diaspora. We wish to constructively utilise our civil liberties to shadow the false international na- narrative of a tolerant and multi-party democracy. And through our activism and humanitarianism, we wish to raise awareness about Ethiopia's ethnically biased and based politics and, and policies, um, excessive and violent measures used to silent um, dissident voices and other attempts to block communication, expression and due process. Now, while that's a big... Um, agenda. It's a big agenda. It is a big agenda. So we, we do try to break it down you know, to the, to the micro level. If people do want to contact us, we do have a Facebook group, yep. um, the Ethiopian Melbourne Youth Support Group, or at T-E-M-Y-S-G. Mm-hmm. Um, we have previously uh, worked in um, collaboration with the um, Oromo and the Garden communities in a protest that was here in Melbourne. Yes, that's um, right. Individually, we have had our own um, fundraising that we've done. So um, raising funds for um, affected regions, whether that be just for medical aid or for food. Um, on Saturday, we are working with the Ethiopian um, community in Victoria for a fundraising event they're doing. It's actually um, Ethiopian New Year on Saturday. Oh, okay. um, Happy New Year. What, <laughs> thank you. But because of what's going on internationally, um, what people have been doing is they've been cancelling the celebration parties because of these deaths and we are in kind of a state of mourning so instead of normally what we would have done is you know gotten an international singer and worn out either cultural clothes or whatever clothes we want to and celebrate um, our new year what we are doing instead is 
um, we've cancelled that program and cancelled um, the singers or the Pearson community has. It's a separate um, body. And they've um, done a, fund, uh, a fundraising night where they're going to have candlelight speeches. Um, they're going to put their food and they have entry. So that's um, tomorrow. And um, you want to give also- the, where, where will that be? Okay, no problem at all. I will give you the um, address of where that is. Sorry, just give me two seconds. Um, it will be in the Fitzroy Road. Just the intervention. I don't know if I have Sorry, it's not Fitzroy. It's um, the Croatian Centre at Fitzgerald Road and yeah. White House Avenue in Ardeer. Um, again, that's the 10th of September at 7pm. Entry will be $40. It will, um, the program would include dinner, coffee ceremony, candlelight ceremony, speeches, poetry and videos. Um, so we're working in collaboration with the Ethiopian um, Community Association of Victoria, um, not only to create awareness about the event, but also to generate more awareness about our group. So we invite everyone to attend that to know a little bit more about what's going on in that area and what we can do to help, as well as you know, contact, contacting us at our Facebook page. That's fantastic. Yeah. Just to add one, one more sure. thing. We, we are new, actually, as was saying, we are new to this and we don't have any experience or education. So if there are any um, activities uh, training would would like to pass in that uh, to we we don't, we don't know how to expose what the government is doing the ethnic cleansing in the world even when the government census is showing 2.7 million uh, Amhara people are missing even though we know that's happening that's going on we don't know how to pressure um, politicians or outside forces to to do their own investigation to go to the country. Mm. And we would, like, we would appreciate any kind of um, training. So mm. if there are any other or, or assistance, yeah. yeah, assistance and training. That's a good call. And uh, I think as um, young people who are new to this whole um, uh, issue, I think you're doing a fantastic job. Um, and we will try and, and give you a radio space anytime you want to to advertise any of the events. That's the one way we can support you. Uh, but there are many listeners out there who who may be able to help as well. So you've you've told us your web your Facebook site, and it's a Croatian cultural center, is it in Whitehorse Road? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Fitzgerald Road, yeah. Fitzgerald Road, okay. And Whiteside Avenue, Adia. Okay, great. Okay, thank you so much for coming on radio and giving us a very small, I guess, uh, a snippet of this enormous uh, struggle going on in Ethiopia where millions of people have gone missing. And um, we shall definitely get in touch with you again as as things develop and see how things are going. And um, thank you so much for being awake at this time of the morning. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Isaiah. Thanks, Vika. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Yep. Okay. Um, so in term, what um, in terms of like news that's happening right now? Um, wonder if um, many um, people here, well, in this studio right now, can comment on because I haven't been reading much about the issue about the big sort of um, strike that's happening in India yes. right now. Over to Kieran. 
big strike happening in India. That wasn't what I was going to talk about. Um, but there's been a, a big strike happening in India in the public sector uh, yep. union. Um, the union says up to, uh, I think it's 180 million, which yes, is, right. is absolutely, <laughs> absolutely mind-boggling for someone who lives in Australia. Um, but uh, it's staggering, isn't yeah, it? That would be enough to make a revolution in Australia, except we don't have 180 million people. Well, there's a million people, so it's a big, big difference. It's percentage. We have, what, 900% of the population on site? Um, uh, uh, so yes, it's a, an enormous, enormous action taken across the country. Um, it was, yeah. It, it was, sorry, yes. Um, it was to protest against the right-wing government uh, and their proposed privatisation and um, really ongoing sort of neoliberal uh, agenda, which has been pushed on the country for quite some time. Um, uh, they were demanding uh, a higher minimum wage. Um, I think it was 638. Um, Rupees? Rupees, thank you. Um, uh, uh, a, week, a week, I think. I'm just doing this off, off memory. Yeah. Um, uh, as well as uh, better conditions and things like this. Um, so uh, it's, it's, I think they... Um, yeah, Lali's got the, the figures directly in front of her. <laughs> oh, I, I, I do too. Um uh, the Guardian reported that among the trade unions, 12 demands were a 392 rupee daily minimum wage, sorry, not weekly, daily, um, universal social security and a ban on foreign investment in the country's railway, insurance and defence industries. Um, the Professor Jayati Ghosh from, um, where is he from? A university in India uh, said that less than 4% of workers in India come under labour protection and even these protections have become more and more eroded. Um, he says there is a general sense that instead of targeting poverty, they are targeting the poor. This is the government, and they've been running around real, running down real, of real spending on essential public services for quite some time. Um, so yeah, yeah. The, the problem in India is everything is privatized. Education is privatized, so you know people have to pay millions of dollars to get the children through decent education, and even kids who go to kindergarten or childcare. In fact, they start school at three and a half in India. It's mm. totally appalling. It's totally uh, privatized. They've, they've got to you know pay, and if you can't afford to pay, bad luck. And that's mm. how the system is. The government schools are totally run down, mm. and it's very difficult um, for people who earn. Uh, a pittance, literally a pittance, like 692 rupees daily is, is like, you know, you divide that by 50, it's, it's a few dollars in your hands per day. And accommodation is very expensive, like the, the properties in Chennai in South India are equivalent to, to house, housing prices here. So mm. if you are, you know, uh, you, uh, you earn your living by uh, uh, driving uh, rickshaws or, or the three-wheelers, as they call it in India, or, you know, if, you, if you're having a small business, there's no chance of sending your kids to, to have a decent education. Health is the same. Health is completely privatized. And doctors can charge whatever they want. And even the regulation system for doctors is really bad. Um, so it's gone on and on. And, and lately they've been privatizing uh, power, they've been privatizing water. In fact, there's a lot of corruption going on where you've got um, government ministers who own water companies through, um, what do you call them, defect to other people. It's in other people's name. We have, I know that Indian name for it. I forgot the English name for it. Corruption? Uh, yeah, you know, you, you nominate somebody else to have their name on the, on oh. the company and you, you are really the owner, but the other person's name's up front, you know. Um, Ah, there's a word for it, I forgot. Shell? Com- oh, I don't know. I've That's all right. But anyway, <laughs> so, so this, the corruption is rife. And the fact is that we have a, a Hindu 
<clears throat> party in power at the moment. There's a lot of religious undertones um, that also complicate matters in India. Um, and like Ethiopia, there are over 200 languages spoken in India. So the states were drawn by the British. <clears throat> so there's so, many, so much stuff that's going on. But at the moment, the key factors are you've got a, a Hindu to a party that is totally and utterly a right wing, anti-women, anti-workers, you know, um, anti-multicultural uh, um, multiculturalism, so to speak, and also intolerant of, of religions. Um, and uh, a lot of killings have taken place in relation to that aspect. Um, although, you know, there's also another view that uh, the people who come, like Christians who come to India, have consistently been focused on converting people to Christianity. So that, that is a very sensitive and a, and a difficult point for a lot of people. Um, all, it used to be that 80% of India was Hindu, but now it's just, it's just you know, receding. But anyway, so the, the key factor is the right-wing nature of this government is also attacking workers' wages and so on, and they have had some trade. They had a trade um, agreement with the U.S., which means the U.S. companies are coming in, lost stock and barrel, and taking on, like the Vodafone factories and so, um, uh, companies and so on, they're coming in and taking over local business. And local, local bourgeoisie are very strong as well. So that battle is yet to be fought out. But this is are they just... Having, are they having some kind of conflict or... Because, um, you know, you've got a big block of capital coming in. Uh, yes, they, they have capital coming in from also some, it's not from the World Bank, although they do borrow from there. But the, the key thing is that large companies actually investing in India. It's a mm. huge market. The battle between the local bourgeoisie mm. and the, uh, 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 you know, foreign bourgeoisie, like Adani coal mines, mm. is from India. Mm-hmm. And investing massive amounts of money in Australia. That's, it's a bit like China too. There are a lot of very rich capitalists who want to invest in third world countries, whether it's Africa or Asia or Australia, whatever it is. And now what happens is in, in India is creating such millionaires, um, and they have become millionaires because of exploitations like this. Mm-hmm. So the fight is on. The unions are starting to, um, mobilize. And India has a very strong history of uh, being, uh, close to the Soviet Union in the past. So that remnant, Calcutta has one of the largest communist parties in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, isn't there Kerala as well? Kerala is there, but Kerala is um, not as active as Calcutta on the, on the industrial front. Oh, okay. And uh, when, when the Communist Party calls a meeting, they have a million people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't even fathom that sort of meetings in Australia. But that's is it all in one room or is it all separated <laughs> <laughs> across different ci- um, cities well, and branches? It's by the beach. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's a very interesting country and it's, it's an amazing um, working class history there. But now they actually start to mobilize, which is um, something we need to watch. But yeah, so people are mobilizing against Modi, particularly because he's so right-wing <laughs> and also he's so anti-worker and he doesn't talk about workers' wages. Um, he's more about yoga and that sort of nonsense, which mm. really we knew all about that. Anyway, he never teach people how yoga. It's ridiculous. But anyway, yeah. so the battle began. Yeah, it's kind of um, just my quick comment just because um, of my Chinese background, but it's interesting um, how, you know, India, that, that kind of action has occurred because right now where the current sort of working class consciousness is at in China, it's so unlikely that that would happen. Mm. Um, but, of course, in the future, there's always the... Future potential, you know, that, you know, because, you know, China and India have a similar population size that, you know, that they could actually get millions of public service because, you know, a lot of workers in China are public service and they're usually forced um, to be members of the Communist Party. So they're in that sense, they're not 
um, allowed to criticise the government in any way. Um, so what actually probably would be really radical is if if that such an action that occurred in India were to actually occur in China and it would really put, you know, China to a standard, especially in the context of these depleting wages, um, yes. overdevelopment, um, environmental pollution, um, in terms a lot of the issues that are kind of happening in Chinese politics right now. Well, well there has been a, a shift in, in, in the industry in China as well. A lot of them are moving further inland because they're finding that um, the, the, the places that are developed now are, are increasingly agitating for... for Yes, there's a lot of... uh, The thing is, we don't hear enough about the strikes that happen in China. Mm -hmm. Hundreds happen on a daily basis Mm -hmm. in different factories, but it's never reported. But the difference between China and India, the the fundamental thing is China has a planned economy. India has a capitalist economy, outright capitalist economy. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference. Although India had a a very long relationship with Soviet Union in the earlier days, there was a little bit of planning, but it's outright capitalist economy, mm. but China is very different. And, and in China, the military and, and, and the party uh, members have a lot of capital in their hands, personal mm. capital. Mm. Whereas in India, you don't have that. The politicians like here, the politicians, you know, rake it in. Uh, not that I, I'm, I'm accusing any politicians here of, of raking anything in, but in, in India, because the politicians are in every state, the states are very strong as well, stronger than here. Mm. So they can control companies, who comes in, who gets a license, and this sort of stuff. Like Malaysia, you know, we had a prime minister who was called the 10% prime minister. So any mm. company that invests have to give a percentage to the, to the particular minister in charge of that industry. So that sort of system goes on in India, and it's, it's an open secret. But the other important thing in India is that there is a lot of left-wing discussion. Everybody talks about Marxism. Everybody talks about left-wing politics. And, in fact, when I was in India not long ago, there was a, uh, a newspaper like, like The Age. Uh, it's called The Hindu. They had a center, pra- a center page spread criticizing the unions and the left parties from the left. They're saying, <laughs> you, you are the left, and this is what you're supposed to be doing, but this is not what you're doing. You're doing this, this, and this, and that is not what a left party should be doing. That's, that's mm. amazing discussions gone in India. It's a very interesting you, you, you place. You hear very little about it in the media. Um, I know. Yeah. And India is full of magazines. Every mm. little shop has I, hundreds of magazines. I, I don't yeah. know about that. Uh, oh, well, just um, uh, with that article um, that you mentioned, uh, The Age has done actually similar things, um, but it's come from more a particular perspective that I don't necessarily agree with. I mean, when the Moreland anti-racism rally happened, um, The Age were pretty keen on <coughs> having a lot of space criticising um, that um, that protest, you know, the, the rationale behind calling that rally, you know, talking about, you know, how... Um, you know, how, you know, screwed up the left is, you know, the left shouldn't be holding violent rallies and so on. It wasn't so, a violent rally. Yeah, that's a, that's the problem, yeah. And so it was coming from a particularly, condi- it was coming, you know, with the concern that there is, is of the left. I don't consider the age really a left-wing paper, but it was sort of coming in a very sort of condescending kind yeah, of way. Yeah, but that is, that is criticising the left from a right-wing mm-hmm. perspective. Yep. What the article I mentioned is criticizing the left from a left-wing oh. perspective. That's a difference. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, you're back on Green Left um, Radio, um, that w- and uh, we just had a discussion about Indian politics. Um, <laughs> I, guess we can, I guess we can move on to the, um, the next um, kind of 
Uh, topic, though it's a bit of a shame that one of our previous programmers is away right I know now. Dennis has nicked off. Yeah, he's gone away. <laughs> he's, um, gone. he's usually the he's usually the one that talks about this, so it's going to be me that's going to be talking about right. this now, even though I don't know as much about Latin uh, American okay. politics. So, in Venezuela, um, this is an article in um, the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, the headline is, you know, opposition Chavez march as right threatens violence. Um, so thousands of Venezuelan um, of of Venezuela's um, right wing opposition took to the streets in Caracas on September Caracas. Caracas in September one, on September one in a menacing march labelled the taking of Caracas. 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 Yeah. <laughs> and so the day um, in this demonstration, you know, it aimed to. Um, to, pre- um, to, um, to speed up um, the legal process because currently there's um, right now there's a, there was a referendum to remove the current standing president Nicolas Mandura from office before the end of the year. Um, it came to it came two days after thousands of government supporters also took to Caracas streets to show support Caracas, Caracas um, streets to show support from Mandura who spoke to the crowd. Um, and Maduro, you know, asked, do you want, um, do they want peace? Um, accusing the opposition of planning violence and potentially a new attempted coup. Um, do they want democracy? We will, we will have democracy, but they try to come at me with a coup, with ambushes and violence. The revolution will respond, um, Maduro said. Of course, this is all coming into sort of the context of, you know, government leaders, you know, have ramped up efforts in you know, recent weeks to show strength and unity ahead of the opposition's march. Um, the August 30th rally followed three pro-revolution demonstrations in the preceding days. Government um, supporters also held competing rally on September the 1st. Um, in Maduro, you know, in, you know, of course, you know, in the context of, you know, this right-wing opposi- opposition to his government has, you know, called on his supporters to maintain the intensity to the streets to counteract the opposition's attempts to oust him with a re- recall referendum. We will ha- we have to be clear about the will of the people and their unbreakable struggle, the popular organisation to struggle. Um, and, um, co- and under Venezuela's constitution, which was drafted by elected constituent assembly and passed by popular vote in 1991, um, this was under um, Maduro's predecessor Hugo Chavez. Um, the the opposition managed to initiate a recall referendum against Chavez, which Chavez easily won. However, the process, which involves 20% of the electors signing a petition, is heavily contested over current attempts to initiate a recall referendum against Maduro. Um, of course, in a light, there's like all these different sort. It's like basically, you know, in Venezuela, what's like, you know, happening? There's sort of this, all this unrest. You know, there's all these there's economic problems in Venezuela doing to sort of the the um, sabotage by the right wing. That's right. Um, but there's also, you know, there's also the um, problem of the fact that um, Venezuela was also in a situation um, is also in a situ- still in a situation where its economy was heavily reliant on oil. And of course, what mm-hmm. happens when oil prices go down due to, say, maybe inflation or... Flooding the market by the... Or flooding it. So there's all all these sort of complex sort of factors. But, of course, course, you know, um, despite, you know, the the sabotage for the right wing, there's still, like, you know, growing sort of left-wing mobilisations in support of, you know, the revolutionary Chavesto government. And the fact of the matter is the right-wing agitators are being funded by, suspiciously... The U.S. Mm. and Venezuela's seen as a very strong left-wing government. Has I mean Chavez when he was around challenged the U.S. constantly, and he was you know friends with Cuba, which 
which is hated by the U.S., although they've supposedly opened up the the uh, market. But the fact remains that the left-wing um, tendencies around Latin America are, bo- uh, you know, are a thorn in the side for the USA. And Venezuela's unrest is a reflection of that um, fight back by the U.S. against any left-wing influences in, in, in um, Latin America. And Venezuela has been particularly strong because of the oil industry. Yeah. But that also tells us that you can't rely on one commodity. Mm-hmm. Monoculture and all sorts of stuff is a disaster. Yeah. And one of the important things in Venezuela is that when uh, Chavez uh, died and Maduro took over, what, what they did very quickly as the right wing started to grow, is to give more and more of the local people powers to make decisions in their own areas. That is the key thing. So that is what's helping them fight back as well. So the central government is unable to do a lot of things that it used to do in the past because the power of decision-making has been distributed to the people. So that is the crux in, in Venezuela and the strategy used by Maduro government. So this will go on for a while as long as the right wing is funded by the U.S., We'll continue. This is one more incident in, along the path. That's yeah. what this is. Okay, I guess um, one, um, before I just conclude this article, um, that um, in sort of um, at the pro-government march in August 30th, um, Maduro called on the Venezuelan people to defend peace in the capital city and fight against the right wing's constant plans to destabilize the country mm. with violence. Um, and then also, he also announced the government also announced, you know, Maduro announced um, the uh, implementation of a peace plan that will run through the end of the year as part of the plan. 15 sports fields for young people will be either built or remapped. Um, you know, 150 schools will be inaugurated in the bar. And the, um, and the Barrio Argentino mission, which provides free healthcare, will be expanded to reach 100% of Car- Caras's residents. Um, Maduro also announced other plans for funding to refurbish hospitals and a plan to replace elevators in Old Moon, among other measures to renovate poor communities. I guess, um, well, before we move on to the other part for Latin America, um, just so what, actually some reminder is that um, it's going to be... Um, the sort of uh, spe- it's going to be the anniversary of sort of the coup against Chile on September 11. Mm-hmm. Um, what um, to the listeners, will, um, what that day signifies is on I think the date was 1971. Was it or what? When? 1979. 1971. I mean, sometime. But basically, the background is sometime in that period, um, uh, a Chilean left government um, was elected. Um, was elected um, Salvador Allende, Allende, and, and he was a, he was elected um, by popular vote with the, by the masses of people, and of course um, he was shot. He was shot, killed, and replaced by um, Pinochet, who was an awful sort of right wing dictator. Really, the prototype laboratory for neoliberalism yes, as well. Yes, and it, oh, I think okay. Kieran is right. It was essentially the, the way um, the, United, the United States didn't like the fact that, you know, Chile had elected a left-wing government with a president that identified openly as a Marxist, um, which is essentially, so they, put, um, they performed a, a coup against the coup, go- coup against the government. Um, and ousted him and replaced him with Pinochet. And so, yes, there'll be a lot of, um, at the Shreds Hall, um, keep posted, there'll be a number of events. Yep. Um, there's going to be a film night on September the 10th at the Shreds Hall about the Chile, um, the anniversary of the Chile um, Coup, which is not celebrating, it's actually more of a mourning kind of thing. No, well, it's, it's a, a mem- memorial thing, I suppose. Yeah, and on September 11, there'll be another memorial happening in the Shreds Hall. 
Yeah, thousands, thousands of people died September 11, the attack. I think it was 73 years. I think you're yeah. right. And, you know, they, they, people carry on about 9-11 in the U.S. Nobody talks about that one. Yeah. In fact, more people died in, in, in Chile than in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But anyway, let's move on. Um, I, I was thinking we should just um, look at the occupation by students in Sydney University of the arts faculty in um, it's a, it's a, a Sydney University's College of Arts, the Sydney College of Arts, SCA it's called, yeah. There's been a, a group of students who've been occupying that uh, building. Do we, know if still, if, do we know if they're still there? Yes, yeah, they they're are. still there. They're yep, still yeah, there. It's, well, um, it's strengthening and it's still going, yeah. Do you want to do that or shall I do that? I don't, I don't have that in there. Okay, that's okay. So the S the SCA, that's a Sydney College of Arts, uh, what happened was the, the arts... Um, it's a beautiful building, and it's um, I think it's seen as a unique uh, area, actually. It's being shut down, and many staff are being sacked. So some students decided that this is not on, and they're going to, to occupy it and put up some demands. So the New South, uh, New South West Liberal Arts Minister, Peter Collins, uh, has condemned the university's uh, precipitous decision to shut down the SCA, which is a good thing. Um, asking questions about the finances, and Ben um, Quilty, a renowned artist and SCA alumni, visited and told the occup occupants not to give up. So activists are getting the word out to students and other universities, and there's heaps of heaps of uh, support for them. The University of um, uh, Technology Sydney and University of New South Wales and Western Sydney University are offering the support. Uh, daily support the occupation. Safe SCA marquee is also being held at Sydney Un University's um, Camperdown. Um, now the Maritime Union has offered support as well, which is amazing and, and very encouraging for the students. And they had a meeting on the 1st of September to, to offer their support. And they, the students have declared that they are not going to go away. And um, Celia Castro um, also said that, they said that they're getting more and more support. Triple J, um, Radio Triple J rings every morning to, to give them an update. Um, and Susie Nelson, a postgraduate SCA student, called on everyone to support another rally on the 7th, which happened um, yesterday before yesterday. So they need to show the university, as, as they see it, how determined um, they are. And they're in inviting alumni and artists to stand up with the students. And any local Melbourne uh, universities, uh, I think in Latrobe, a similar thing has been happening. We interviewed... Uh, test from the Bendigo University of Lotrop University a few weeks ago where the art faculty is being sliced as well. Mm. So we, it's good to see young people standing up and fighting for their rights. And art is one area that is being targeted by most of the governments because they're focused on maths, science. Remember the days of the triple R, you know, like uh, reading, writing, arithmetic nonsense. You know, like in other words, the, the plan, the overall plan is to just uh, create basic workers for the capitalist system to utilize. It's not about developing the child to its optimal level, but it's about creating workers. Mm. And this is part of the step, too. You certainly don't want to encourage any sort of critical thinking, Lali. Absolutely. Yeah. You are one of those mm. people in university. Yeah. You should be speaking. <laughs> uh, well, actually, it's interesting. Um, um, they, they, there's a lot of talk uh, in, about critical thinking in universities, but actually Noam Chomsky actually had one of the more interesting kind of analysis on this. Um, but basically, the kind of... Um, the, promote um, the kind of university ideology in, ideology in universities, especially in 
neoliberalism is that, you know, they promote a lot of diversity of thought in, say, you know, fields, say, like physics, Mm -hmm. engineering, um, basically any sort of fields where, you know, that don't actually actively challenge the status quo because you can probably go on a lot about yes. physics and <laughs> probably not get anywhere to... Um, so they, but they actually discourage a lot of sort of more critical thinking in, say, fields like, you know, sociology, things uh, that have to do with understanding society. And, of course, those are the fields that actually get cut the most. So, That's yeah, true. you can kind of see sort of the pattern there. I guess another comment I would like to make about um, the SCA occupation is that it's um, potentially the longest yes. student occupation in ye- recent, and recent history. Hasn't it already crossed that? Yeah. yeah, it's already crossed yeah. the threshold. And um, and the fact that um, the unions, um, big unions, like are giving yeah. support to it is, you know, shines that, you know, it's going to grow and it's going to keep on growing. Um, in terms of, like, you know, the logistics of the occupation, um, you know, there's people staying there every night, people sort of going in and out, which is a bit funny because um, they've kind of like the, um, cut the Wi-Fi out, um, but they've also been provided with a phone, um, a special phone for the SCEA. Um, they've got, and they've, I think they've Most kids have their own internet on the phone anyway, so it doesn't yeah. matter. Well, are they, but the SCEA Corporation has got, has got its own phone now, which is, um, which is yeah. a good development. Um, they're getting food donations, you know, to keep themselves fed. Yeah. Um, and so it's generally a very exciting. And they also held they also held a rally, actually, recently right. as well. Yeah. Um, not um, featured in Lace Green Left Weekly because it, um, it will be in next week's, but um, that's um, also, I think, attracted around hundreds of students. Um, not not a huge rally like the one that happened yesterday about COB, but generally a pretty, no, good. But a pretty big rally for something that happened on the university campuses. For so. young people to get active... Did you want to say something? No. For, for young people to get active and do something like this, I think it's a first in a long time. And uh, hats off to them. Now, quickly, I want to say one thing that really bugs me with this sort of stuff. What they don't realize is even science cannot exist without art. Mm. Art means creativity. And, and to, to come up with a theory that is a, the creative talents of any one person, and that is that falls within the art think artistic thinking if you like and once you have a theory then you go and do your, your PhD in whatever you want to do but science requires art and in fact that, that guy I think is um, Brian Cox if I I don't know if I got the name yeah, right the physicist he was, he's a particle physicist or something I mean he combines art and science beautifully. He was in Q&A a few weeks ago, and, and I saw his program. It's just amazing how he, he combines the two. And this ignorance about how people learn is what this, this government and the Sydney's are displaying at the moment. But and, um, speaking as a philosophy student, you know, this is yes. an era dear to my heart, um, <laughs> is that uh, science, of course, relies on ways of viewing the world. We've got frameworks in our head which we approach when we approach empirical data, and we interpret it through that. Mm. So you can't separate... Um, a, a philosophical base from science. You can't do science without the, the, the arts and the humanities as, as an integral part of it. And um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's mind-boggling that people think you can. Well put, young man. <laughs> and those, if you want to support the the students who are actively involved in this, please call Celia on zero four one six triple five two six two or Susie on zero four double two. 161166 and they'll be grateful for any support from anywhere around Australia. I think it's really important we support the young people to do this sort of stuff, to stand up for their rights for a start, never mind anything else, just to be able to speak their mind and stand up for their rights is really important. Okay, we'll just go quick to a quick announcement and then go to the activist calendar. 
Um, there's the Brewery Workers Daily Protest. Maintenance workers at CUB breweries have been sacked and re-offered their job with less pay. This is at like 6 to 8. It's happening every 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So you come down to the site um, every from Monday to Friday. Uh, this is at Carlton United Brewery, 77 South Bank Boulevard. No, this is not. That's not actually the address. It's actually in Abbotsford. Um, the site Carlton United um, in breweries in Abbotsford. This uh, is printed wrong okay now on uh, this um if you're interested in getting the latest copy of the green left weekly um there'll be a Flinders, there's a Flinders street store this today um from 4 to 6 p.m um where you can get the latest copy of the green left weekly um on saturday on saturday night um there'll be a campaign launch um for sue bolton for moreland um launch of the campaign to re-elect moreland socialist councillor sue bolton with speakers, food and drink, music. Um, that's happening on Saturday, the 10th of September at 6.30pm at the Antonio Cultural Centre, 195 Sydney Road in Coburg. Anatolian Cultural Centre. Um, there will be a forum um, on Chile, um, 43 years of struggle, resistance and solidarity. We do not forgive, we do not forget. Forget on Sunday, the September 11, 11am, 11 Trades Hall, Corner of Ligon and Victoria Streets, Carbon South. That's Lasnet, is it? Yes, it's a Lazant organised yep. event. Um, there'll be um, official opening of the Tonomarinawat and Malabuluhena monument. Um, come, come and celebrate the lives and struggles of two Aboriginal freedom fighters who were brutally executed by foreign raiders, colonists and oppressors. That's at 2pm, the corner of Franklin Street and Victoria Parade in the city. And apologies for that name. They're very long names and they're difficult to pronounce. Yeah. Um, there'll be a film screening of the Bell of Algiers, um, presented by Australian Asian Worker Links, um, Monday, September the 12th, 6 p.m. at Long Bay, 318 um, St George Roads and Fitzroy North. And I'll plug. That's a pretty good. Mo- that's a great movie. Yeah, it's a very good movie. <laughs> worth seeing. And it's on the top 20, 250 of Internet Movie Database. And does um, Kieran want to read out some activist calendar events as well? Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Um, where did you go? You can. Oops. Um, uh, there's a forum coming up as well for um, Pine Gap, uh, uh, serving U.S. militarism for 50 years. Uh, this is on Wednesday, September the 14th at 7 p.m. Trades Hall. Um, there's also Subversive Cinema, Capitalism, uh, a two-part documentary hosted by New International Bookshop on Thursday the 15th of September. Um, uh, it's it's tickets are five dollars or three dollars for Nibs, Nibs members. Uh, this is a Six-part documentary that will be going um, be shown uh, two parts of it each month for the next three months uh, about the history of uh, 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 development and development of economic thought. Uh, the first one's I think on Adam Smith, if I remember correctly. Um, we also have a, a comedy, a Political Asylum's U.S. Election Comedy Special, um, which is is by a, a, a group called. Well, political sign, of course. Um, Friday, the September the 16th, and Saturday, September the 17th at 8.30 at the Fringe Hub, which is in the Lithuanian Club um, in North Melbourne, 44 Errol Street. Uh, we also have Blockade the War Machine, protest at weapons manufacturer on Friday the 16th of September at 8am, which is out on 208 Princesses Hi- Princess Highway, Dandenong. Um, quite an early protest and quite a long way up, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure some people will make it to it. Um, we also have a walking tour, um, How Long Must I Hold On? The Establishment of Women's Public Toilets in Melbourne, 
Um, That's a good title. <laughs> it is a good title. Um, it, 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 uh, women didn't have uh, public toilets until 1899 in Melbourne. Um, so this is a... It's a Free public tour, I think, yes, um, on Saturday, September 17th at 11am. It's starting at the State Library in the foyer, so just there on Swanson yeah. Street. Is that it? Yeah. I've, got, uh, that is I've it. got another one. Um, <coughs> this is actually a, a seminar and a book launch. Uh, it's happening at uh, the Melbourne Law School, room 920, level 9, 185 Powerham Street, Carlton. The seminar is um, by three people, Dr. Po Su Kwai from Singapore, who was actually in prison for almost 15 years because he was uh, one of the opposition people in Singapore. And um, he has written a book called Living in a Time of Depression and a study of Singapore history from the post-war period to 1965. Now, this is an interesting one. It's not very often you get information about Singapore because we have this concocted vision of um, Singapore in people's minds, how a wonderful place and a great island it is. Even authoritarianism and wonderful. Isn't mm-hmm. it ever efficient? Well, yeah. <laughs> the trains run on time is, I think, what they said about Mussolini. <laughs> and yeah. if, you, if you rubbish the place, you get fined a few hundred dollars. Yeah. Anyway, the other speakers are Chio So Lung, a retired lawyer, a director of Function Eight, the social enterprises, enterprise in Singapore. And uh, <clears throat> that is the publisher of Living in a Time of Deception. So that's a connection there. The third speaker um, is actually talking about Indonesia. So it's a forum about Singapore and Indonesia. The, spe- the third speaker is Associate Professor Kate McGregor, is a historian of Indonesia. She co-founded the Historical Justice and Memory Network and is currently undertaking a four-year Australian research Council Future Fellowship on the project of, project of Confronting Historical Injustice in Indonesia. So that would be a very interesting forum for those who wish to attend. And the, it's <coughs> next Thursday, the 15th of uh, September, 6 to 7.30, room 920, level 9, Melbourne Law School, Palham Street, Carlton. Okay. Yeah, I should probably go to that because actually my background is Singapore, from Singapore. <laughs> my mum was born in Singapore, so that would be really interesting. All right, we'll go on to a couple of announcements before we go to the yep. next interview. Uh, hello, morning. Good morning. Ah, oh, Michael, you're on yep. the line. Okay, uh, welcome to 3CR, Michael, uh, and Green Left Radio. And Hi. we've got Jacob. Kieran and Lalitha on, on um, line here. So, I guess, I guess um, the first question. So introduce well, him. He's the. Uh, he uh, Michael Leach is the head of department at uh, the arts and arts and social sciences. Arts and social sciences at Swinburne University. I go there. I should know. Um, uh, he's an associate professor who specialises in East Timor. Yeah. So I guess um, the f- first question to sort of ask is, you know, for sort of first-time listeners, sort of to give the you know, the background of, you know, politics in, in East Timor before we can go on to sort of maybe what the recent developments are in that region? Well, um, I'm sure you're, the listeners are aware that East Timor was um, a Portuguese colony for some 400 years and then was occupied by, uh, forcibly occupied by Indonesia from 1975 to 1999 and finally um, restored its independence in 2002 after a brief period of UN governance. Um, and uh, since that time, um, you know, has been an independent uh, nation. Yeah. Um, 
So in more more recent times, it's obviously had some uh, some uh, tensions with that. It's, uh, it's now bringing that country Australia. And and so what are what are um what are the sort of the examples of those um, tensions between Australia and East Timor? Well, uh, Australia and East Timor have at times had quite good relations since um, 2002. Australia was obviously contributed troops to the Interfed Force, which sort of belatedly um, <coughs> supported um, East Timor's right to self-determination after 24 years of pretty much de facto support for Indonesia's occupation. So uh, a lot of Australians were quite proud of that. Um, then, uh, of course, uh, Australians are sometimes um, surprised to learn that we don't have a maritime boundary with uh, Timor Estate. And, and that's um, um, the, the Timor Gap. Uh, do you want to talk a yeah. bit more about that? Yeah, the Timor Gap. The, the reason there's a gap there is that in 1972, Australia achieved a pretty favourable outcome with Indonesia, a continental shelf boundary that really favoured Australia mm-hmm. um, <coughs> in the Timor Sea. Um, the Portuguese, then Portuguese administration, colonial administration, would not agree to the same deal. The Portuguese in 1972 decided that international law was already heading in the direction of a median line position, and they were correct about that. That's where international law was heading. And uh, several years later, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea established that as the kind of norm in international maritime boundary determination. So the Portuguese refused to sign up to this deal. That created the Timor Gap, so the gap between Portuguese Timor and Portuguese Timor and Australia. Uh, there was no maritime boundary. Instead, there's been a series of uh, revenue-sharing agreements in that gap. <coughs> and uh, famously or infamously, one was signed between Gareth Evans and Ali Alatast as um, they flew over the Timor Gap uh, for a 50-50 deal between Australia and Indonesia, which was a sort of Effectively, <laughs> Australia de facto recognition of the uh, illegal occupation of East Timor by, by Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Um, after independence, obviously, uh, that had to be renegotiated with the independent state of, of Timor-Leste, and here we are. Um, what um, there's um, been uh, one of the things I've heard about um, sort of um, East Timor and its relations with Australia is um, there's a particular kind of demand in sort of the movement of um, East Timor. You know, steel. Oh no, not East Timor. Australia is plays a role in stealing East Timor's oil and its resources. And what is your kind of what is sort of elaboration of you know the kind of economic relations that occur between um, East Timor and Australia in relation to you know oil. Well, um, Professor Quentin Fernandez calls um, calls East Timor Australia's largest aid donor, <laughs> which is um, quite an amusing way to put it. Um, <laughs> grimly amusing, I suppose. Yes, um, grim. Yeah. And you're the poorest nation <laughs> yeah. in the, the world. <laughs> yes. That's right. Uh, look, um, in the joint petroleum development area, uh, Australia makes a lot of a lot of the fact that there's a 9010 uh, revenue split in favour of Timor Leste, but. On a median line boundary, that would be 100% Timor's territory, so <clears throat> it's not quite as generous as it might appear. Mm-hmm. Um, then um, there's the Greater Sunrise Field, which is um, the subject of recent uh, disputes. Um, depending on where the lateral or side boundaries are, um, uh, East Timor claims it would get a lot more of um, that field as well than it's currently getting, which is about 50 50. But the main objection that they have <coughs> at the moment is that they are, they are entitled to a they argue they're entitled to a maritime boundary. Um, the CMATS Treaty of 2006 puts that off, defers that for for um, 50 years, <coughs> and they argue that at the time that that was signed, they were 
in a very weak bargaining position. Um, and moreover, in recent times, the allegations have been made that the, the negotiating team was tied upon uh, from 2004 to 2006. That allegation comes from a former ASIS agent, so it's a fairly credible allegation. <coughs> and uh, Tim was therefore trying to have that treaty uh, declared void. Um, so they're running a separate action to avoid that treaty. And that's the treaty that puts off the maritime boundary negotiation for um, for um, 50 years. Now, you, you, your listeners might wonder why Tim was signed in the first place. And if you go back to 2004 to six, Tim will literally have no budget at all. It's entirely reliant on aid. Um, from other countries, and so you know there was a lot of pressure on it to, to get the oil and gas revenues flowing in, in those fields. Yeah, that brings me into the kind of the next kind of curiosity and question I have is, what is the the kind of role that? Because um, I hear a lot about you know foreign aid and the kind of foreign aid we give to East Timor, but what is the this the role that you know this foreign aid that Australia gives and um, in particular, NGOs um, in East Timor, what kind of you know contradictory role that they play in you know the East Timor region, and does it actually you know help the um, do these NGOs actually play a positive role or a negative role in terms of self determination for and and the helping of of people in East Timor? Well, I guess you'd have to make a judgment on each individual program. I mean, you know, there's <clears throat> critiques out there of Australia's aid program in general, and then I just the main. The main critique of that is that it tends to be boomerang aid, uh, by which the, you know, those critics are making that point. So these things go out to tender, and then they're tendered for by Australian businesses mm-hmm. <laughs> who, uh, who get the aid money uh, for providing the services. Now, you know, look, a lot of a lot of aid, uh, the aid money that Australia spends in Timor is well spent, in my opinion. Um, you know, you need to look at some some really good. Programs that are run there, but a lot of it is also part of the military, you know, um, uh, spending when Australia contributed troops, and now some of that provided some stability at important times in Timorese history. Um, but then there's police programs and those sort of things. Um, but there's some very good stuff that Australia does around water, for example, uh, in, in East Timor. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a question of looking at what aid program is going on and whether and whose interest they support. I think the, the key thing there is, is, is it people-led development and uh, is it truly enabling people to, um, you know, to um, build capacity? Uh, and you have to judge those things program by program, in my opinion. Yeah, um, just uh, finishing up quickly, do you have any... Um, uh, uh, sorry, Lali's giving me... Into the mic. Into, sorry, I need to speak into the <laughs> microphone. Um, is there anything, a particularly very recent change in the in the in the relation regarding the Timor Gap? Is um, I understand something's coming up, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. Yeah, right now there's a, a thing going on called the conciliation. That's a compulsory conciliation. Now Australia uh, dropped out of the um, binding dispute resolution uh, jurisdiction of the UN Law of the Sea just before Timor's independence. And they did the same. They dropped out of the same jurisdiction for the International Court of Justice. And basically what that means is Australia said we won't be bound by any international judicial decisions about the maritime boundary. So Australia did that just before the restoration of East Timor's independence, raises the issue of why they did it then. Mm-hmm. One would suspect they weren't very confident in their position on a continental shelf, which is much closer to East Timor than, than halfway. <clears throat> so... That meant that East Timor couldn't take Australia to the um, International Court of Justice or any other 
uh, tribunal and get a binding decision. What they do have left is the right to a compulsory conciliation, and that's going on right now, and that just means that Australia and East Timor have to sit down and discuss the maritime boundary. Um, the Conciliation Commission forms a report. That report must form the basis of good-faith negotiations afterwards between Australia and East Timor. However, it's not binding on Australia, so it's not the same as a binding dispute resolution. That process is going on right now in The Hague, and it's the only one that's left left open still to uh, Timor Leste. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much, Michael, for yeah, being you. available. You're welcome. Not feeling well, but I can notice. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the morning I've got my kids running around, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, anyway, <laughs> despite the kids much. running around. That is great. Yeah, they are. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Bye. See ya. Welcome back to Green Love Weekly and getting to the end of the program. We want one last article, which um, it's a very interesting one, given the Black Lives Matter issue is very up, very much uh, in the news these days. So, Jacob, you want to talk about that, yeah. about this um, Colin Ka- Kaepernick? Yep. Ka- so, yeah, um, <coughs> I think we might... In the USA. We might have covered the kind of the, the origins of the, um, this, this story last week, but I guess we can go over it again. Um, yeah, Colin Combrick, um, basically, there was a... A, a U.S. anthem, I think, during a sports game being played, and um, Kaepernick um, refused to stand up in, you know, in and sing the anthem. And he it was actually a silent protest against the U.S. anthem because, um, as it argued in this article, that it's, it's actually an the anthem actually celebrates um, American slavery. Um, you know, and few people, you know, know this because we only ever um, sing the first verse. But you know, if you read the end of the third verse, you'll see why um, the, sta- the Star Spangled um, Banner is not just a musical atrocity; it is an, an intellectual and moral one too. Um, no refuge could save the highland slave from the terror flight or the gloom of the grave, and the Star Spangled Banner in triumph don't wave over the light of the freedom. The Star Spangled um, America. Banner Americans uh, Hazley remember was written by Francis Scott Key about the Battle of the Fraud, McNary in Baltimore during the War of 18, uh, 1812, but no one talks about how the War of 1812 was a war of aggression that began with an attempt by the US to grab Canada from the British Empire. Mm. He actually says that there are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder, so that's an interesting statement from him. Okay, that, Kieran, you want to do something as well? Oh, this is a, this is we're doing the next issue. one more article. We've got. Oh, uh, yep, one more article. Um, yep, this is just uh, very quickly about what's going on in the north of Syria at the moment. Uh, recently, Turkey just declared that it was going to get involved in the Syrian conflict, and it has done so um, by. Uh, it's debated whether any shots were actually fired when they came in and took Jarablus off uh, the Islamic State, Daesh. Um, they swiftly turned their attention from Daesh to uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is majority Kurdish, but includes other groups such as Assyrians, Syriacs, um, uh, Turkmen, uh, various other ethnic groups, um, and began uh, bombing and shelling. This is uh, up in the north of Syria, just to the west of the Euphrates River, um, in an operation called Euphrates Shield, which involved Turkish tanks and um, Islamist forces that the media sometimes refers to as the Free Syrian Army, but whenever you hear that, you should say who exactly is being referred I to know, here. So confusing. Um, uh, so yeah, there's been even uh, uh, 
accusations of chemical weapons being used in photos, though um, the, the, those claims by the YPG that this has been used against them. I don't know where they got it from, if, it, if um, they did. But one of the things as well is that's interesting about this conflict is for quite a long time there's been extensive documented evidence of Turkish state collusion with uh, ISIS, financial, mm. uh, logistical and military. Um, recently the YPG released a 60-page PDF of um, uh, various passports and testimonials taken off ISIS fighters. So it's a very suspicious um, uh, actions that the Turkish state is getting up to in northern Syria. There, um, there's several live maps you can look at um, on Google uh, if you want to learn more about the region because, these, because we don't live near these places. These places are often quite um, uh, unknown, but uh, these live maps are quite good. So I would recommend looking at one of those if you're interested. Yeah, and it's also interesting that, um, you know, of more recent uh, times, the mainstream media, which has always condemned the Turkish or pre presented the Kurdish forces or the YPG um, as uh, a you know, reactionary force or a non-US supporting force and, and, and alien to them, has uh, started to say that, oh, well, the YPG is now supported by the US in fighting ISIS, which is a miracle, in my opinion, given the, the way the Kurdish people have been trying to get support for their plight for a very, very long time. But um, the, the US is putting an interesting position now because they have been backing the YPG with airstrikes, but they also want to back the Turkish state because of NATO. That's right. So um, what's going to happen is going to be very interesting. Um, a bit schizophrenic, to say the least, yes. isn't it? Okay, any, anything else you wanted to say, um, Jacob, before we finish? Apparently the Western Bulldogs won yesterday, which oh, is a bit of a shame. Oh, yeah. no. They might make the grand away. final. I'm going to strangle you afterwards. <laughs> I have no opinion. <laughs> you're, you're from the West. You should have an opinion, no, okay? Not the West. football. Not everybody's football mad. <laughs> the only thing about football I say is I'm disgusted because the, the women AFL team gets paid as much as one male AFL player. I am yeah. totally well, disgusted. Actually, to make it political, actually, um, there's... It um, is political. There, there was a, it, is. it is political, <laughs> but um, there was an interesting... Um, uh, the, it's an interesting, you know, that um, there was a women's AFL game that actually got very high ratings. It was actually the highest rating sports game of that particular night, um, and it kind of go blows a whole dent in this argument that you know, women sh well, women should be paid. E women AFL players should be paid the same as AFL male AFL players, regardless. But you know, there's a the, the economic argument that they shouldn't is you know well and truly sort of debunked by the fact that this mm. women's AFL game was the highest rated sports game you know, on that particular night, um, time slot. And Yesterday was equal payday. Yeah. And I'll kill anyone who says that women don't deserve equal pay. The child worker, child care workers went on strike. Don't yeah. forget. It's just disgraceful. It's, yeah. They're 16 to 18% behind. Mm. And the private, that's in the public sector. In the private sector, up to 30% behind men. Mm. So we went have to work extra couple of months to earn a one year's wage. That's what it says. Yeah. Men can knock off at 330 and get a full wage, and women have worked the extra two hours. Mm. That's all the numbers I've got in my head. Don't mm. even go there. But Quite anyway. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Goodbye from Lalita. Um, Jacob and, and Kieran. And thanks to Kieran for coming in, especially for this program, despite his youth and liking to sleep in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Okay. Thanks, listeners. And we have um, Beyond Zero Emissions coming up next. <laughs>